Well, good morning. Great to see you. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to uh, page one, the book of Genesis. Uh, that we are starting a new series this morning called Origins, and over the next five weeks, we are going to be looking at uh, the beginning of the story. Uh, the beginning of the story that lays a foundation for everything that comes after it uh, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We are going to be looking at uh, questions of where did we come from, and uh, why are we here, and what went wrong. And uh, so if you would, turn with me to um, Genesis 1 and stand, and we're going to read um, the whole chapter. It's a little bit longer, but you can, uh, you can handle it, right? Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And he called the waters that were gathered together and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the living livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the creatures, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living, creature, every living, living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of, the, of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens. And to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And God, would you um, help us now as we turn our attention um, to these, uh, this description, this narrative, these events. Would you help us to understand more fully who you are and who we are? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. But one of the uh, memories I have of my childhood, I don't know how many times this happened, but it, it seemed like it happened a lot. I would wake up in the night, and sometime in that space where it feels like in between sleep and awake, I would wake up and just um, have this experience of being totally disoriented. And I remember it being scary, and the sense that it felt like my house was huge, and my parents' room was down the hall, and it was so far away, and I might be safe if I could get there, but how could I ever make it all the way there? I was just completely confused and disoriented, and I hated that feeling. We hate the feeling of being confused and disoriented, and yet the reality is that we live in, um, in disorienting times, don't we? Um, there are so many ways I could, I could illustrate that. I'm, I could give you examples, and I mean, I'm going to give you a couple, and it's probably going to I mean, offend everybody, you know, one way or another here. But, um, I mean, okay, p- politics, right? Wherever you land on the, on the political spectrum, these are disorienting, confusing, frustrating times, right? Uh, questions of gender and sexuality, um, I mean, I'm not even going to presuppose an answer to where we're going to come down on any of those issues. I'm just saying that the fact that we're asking questions about um, is a, someone who's born a male always a male. Uh, the way we're asking those questions is gender static, is sexuality fluid. Um, the, way, the fact that we ask those questions and the way that we engage in them uh, demonstrates that we are confused about who we are as human beings. We live in disoriented times, disorienting times. Our own lives are confusing and disorienting. Um, uh, We, you know, most of us, many of us in the room, not all of us, obviously, are parents. Um, Being a parent is confusing, right? I am about to have a teenager um, (laughs) who everybody's looking at right now. (laughs) I've never had a teenager before. we have children who are becoming teenagers. We've never done this before. We don't know what we're doing. It's confusing. It's disorienting. Um, our health, our bodies don't work the way that we want them to work. Um, in big ways and in small ways. 
Our bodies don't function the way we think they should. Our work is confusing and disorienting. We work and we work and we work. And yet, so often the experiences, we put in the time and we make the effort and we have the plan. And yet, and yet at the end of the day, it doesn't work the way that we think it should. And it's confusing and we don't, we don't understand. We don't see the results that we would expect. Well, the book of Genesis tells the story of the creation of the world, but it tells the story for a purpose. <coughs> Excuse me. It tells the story of the beginning of the world, but it wasn't written at the beginning of the world. It was written by Moses. It was written when the people of God had come out of slavery in Egypt, and they had crossed through the Red Sea, and they're on their way to the Promised Land. And under the inspiration of God, Moses uh, tells this people, this group of people that are... Uh, I mean, imagine if your entire history of who you are as a person, not just you, but your people for 400 years, is that you are slaves and you are worthless and all you exist for is to serve the good of you know, the, the Egyptian superpower. And suddenly, despite all odds, um, you are free and you don't know exactly where you're going and you don't know, I mean, talk about being disoriented. And so through Moses, God tells this story of the history, the origin of the world, of the cosmos. And he tells this story of uh, where they came from to help them understand who they are so they know where they're going. Think about where you are if you don't know um, where you came from and where you are or where you're going. You would say, we would say, well, I'm lost, right? If you don't know where you came from, where you are, where you're going, you're lost. I hate... I hate feeling lost. I hate feeling confused. I hate being disoriented. That experience of waking up in the middle of the night and um, just being disoriented, not really knowing what was real and what's not, um, was so profoundly confusing to me as a kid. The last time that happened to me, I was in my 20s. I was married to Ashley. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night, um, you know, somewhere in that space between sleep and awake, and just being completely disoriented, confused. I remember the ceiling feeling like it was so far away. I don't know if I'm like, am I crazy? Does this happen to anybody else? It's so scary. <clears throat> and in my confusion, um, you know, Ashley waking up, and saying, what's going on? And I remember just saying to her, will you just talk to me? Like, I don't have any idea what's going on right now. I don't know why, but would you just talk to me? Would you just tell me what's true? Would you remind me of what's, would you help bring me back to reality by just talking to me? Well, that's what the book of Genesis is. It's God telling us what's really true, bringing us back to reality, helping us get reoriented in the world, in this disorienting world that we live in. All of our lives, um, we're living our lives according to a story. And the story that we believe helps us make sense of, of the world. And yet what we experience um, when, our, when the story we tell ourselves about the world doesn't line up with our actual experience of that world, what, what happens is disorientation and confusion. And the book of Genesis brings us back. It helps reorient us to what's really real. So let's look at this story together, this story that orients us to life in this world. Well, the first thing that we see in this story 
is who the main character is. Who's this story about? You know, um, we live in a time and a place where we think the main character of the story is who? It's me, right? Um, I am the main character of my story, and you're the main character of your story, and occasionally you get a guest appearance in my story, but mostly my story's about me, and your story's about you, and sometimes I appear in your story, but your story's about you, and my story's about me, so just back off, right? That's the way we think about it. Um, yeah, it's a, prof it's a really modern way to think of, of, um, of the world, that um, the ancient Israelites had a different view of the world. Most ancient people, most ancient cultures, um, Eastern cultures still, uh, tend not to think of the individual as the main character of the story. Um, the temptation for the ancient Israelites was to believe that uh, nature was the main character in the story. Uh, for 400 years, they had been enslaved in Egypt, where the Egyptians worshipped the sun god, Ra. And it's easy to understand where, uh, you know, why ancient cultures would believe that the sun and the moon and the stars were divine creature beings, right? If the sun shines, life is good. And if the sun doesn't shine and your crops don't grow, there is literally nothing you can do about it. And in this, like, stroke of genius, the book of Genesis talks to these people who've just come out of this land where the sun and the moon and the stars were worshipped as divine. And in its description of the creation of those beings, those heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars, it doesn't even name them. Uh, it's amazing where it talks about the creation of the sun and the moon, and it doesn't even have the word sun or moon. It just says, and God also made some lights. Uh, there's a bigger one, and there's a smaller one. There's one in the day, and there's one in the night, and then there's also some stars, right? And it just totally doesn't even mention um, these beings. It just relativizes the false gods of nature. But what does that say to us? What does it say about us thinking that we are the main character in the story. Well, human beings do get a mention at the very end of chapter 1, but the Bible starts by telling us about who the main character is. In the beginning, who? God. Right? It begins, the fourth word of the Bible, telling us who the main character is. In the first 34 verses of the Bible, God is mentioned 35 times. It takes a lot of arrogance to read that and come to the conclusion, it's probably not about God, right? It's probably about me. Um, in the first chapter, the first 35 verses of the Bible, God is, God does, God speaks, God is pleased. It's about God. God wasn't created. Everything that is depends on God. He is the cause of all things. He is the author of all things. He is the one who, who judges all things. He's the reason for the existence of all things. All of life is about him. The story is about God. He is the main character. And our lives will be profoundly disoriented until we begin to realize, we recognize that life is not ultimately about me, it's ultimately about God. It's ultimately about God. He is the main character of the story and of my story and of your story. William Boyle uh, was a scientist who's a mathematician in the late 60s. He uh, developed a process to capture light and therefore images digitally. And uh, over time, that technology was developed and um, it resulted in the invention of something that every single one of us has in our pocket right now the digital camera, right? We don't even have just a digital, right? But we all have one. 
digital camera, okay? And so over time, the, the, you know, the, the theoretical process was developed into an actual invention, and William Boyle went into a camera store to buy a camera, and he was talking to this young salesman, this little punk kid, this guy who talked, he was rude and condescending to William Boyle, and he's, he's trying to explain to this old man how this process works. And finally, this, this salesman says, I can never explain it to you simply enough for you to understand. You're just going to have to take my word for it. And William Boyle says, son, I invented that camera. And the guy says, yeah, right. And they went and looked it up on the computer. And soon everybody in the store is coming to take digital pictures with the guy that invented the digital camera in the store. Do we realize the arrogance of looking at our inventor and saying, well, you're just going to have to take my word for it because I know how this life works best. Do we realize how condescending it is to say to God, I hear you, but I'm going to decide for myself what's best. One of the most common things that we hear people say today is something like, well, you know, I just have to be true to myself. I have to do whatever, you know, I have to like, I have to make my, it's all about making myself happy. I have to pursue my dreams. I have to, we've, we've, um, we've turned like self-centeredness into a virtue in our culture. And um, how is that working? <laughs> I mean, I said this a couple, I don't know, months ago here. I thought somebody was going to challenge me. I've lived in Ladera Ranch for two and a half years. I've yet to meet a happy person. Nobody contradicted me last time I said that. Um, I think, no, I'm not going to say that. There's one happy person in the room. <laughs> um, we think our time is our own. It's up to me to decide how I'm going to spend my time. And so maybe God tells me the community is good for me and I need to, I need to you know, uh, regularly be involved in community and the life of, of worship and gather together regularly with God's people. But I, yeah, I'm going to take that under advisement, but I, I don't have to do that if I don't want to. That's what, that's what we tell ourselves. I was talking with someone recently and we were talking about, okay, I'm just going to warn you, this is, going to, this is like the hardest thing I'm going to say today and then we'll move on. I was talking with somebody recently about um, the phenomenon that this is happening across the country that um, baby boomers, by and large, are reaching the point in their lives where they are becoming empty nesters, they're entering retirement, and in many cases are just checking out of church. People who have been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years are just checking out. And they're present, but they're disengaged, and... Um, and um, now that the kids are out of the house and now that there's more freedom with their time and there's more money available, they're, they're present, but they're pulling back. And there's almost this sense of saying, we've put in our time, we've, we've, you know, we've, done, we've done our share. And now it's time to enjoy you know, whatever life has for us. And I was talking about this with a friend and he said, sure, but what about somebody who says, well, you know, we've always wanted to travel and now we can actually do it. And, you know, there's a sense in which that's good, and, and that's right. But if the only metric is, is to say, well, it's about what I've always wanted to do, and I've just got to pursue my dreams, and now finally I've got the opportunity to do it. And we give no thought to what is the call of God in my life. Then I think we are profoundly missing the reality of who God has created us to be. 
Because the, tr the reality is that the church needs this generation so badly. Um, like, I mean, let me just say this clearly. Like, our church needs this generation so badly. Um, we, need the, we need the experience, the life lesson, the wisdom of people who have successfully raised teenagers. I mean, just to tell us, like, you, you, all you need to do is just, I don't know what you need to say. I've never done it before. That's why we need you here. Um, I can't tell you as a young church how much we need you, how much I need you. As a culture, we've raised self-centeredness to a virtue. And yet, by any measure, we are less happy as human beings than we have ever been. And the solution is right here in the fourth word of the Bible. It is profoundly disorienting. I mean, think about this. Think about how disorienting, how confusing, how absurd it is to go through life thinking, my life is mostly a story about me and my own happiness, and yet life comes and keeps whacking us on the back of the head. And we're like, this is the weirdest story ever. I'm the main character of this story, and yet things don't seem to go well for me a lot of the time. Well, the problem is that we've gotten the story wrong. We're not the main character. And so we run from reality because reality leaves us confused and depressed and angry. So we run from it or we numb it with entertainment or we try to outrun it by becoming workaholics and it's not working. But the story of life makes sense when we acknowledge that God is the main character. Life is not primarily about me. God is the main character. Okay, that's the first thing Genesis tells us to reorient us to life in this disorienting world. And if we just said, okay, like, thus saith the Lord, let's pray, that could be terrifying, right? Um, there's a God, and it's all about him, so shut up. <laughs> but what's this story about? What, what, what kind of story is this? I mean, is this the story of a creator God who toys with us the way that we, you know, kids toy with ants? Um, that would be terrifying, so the second thing we need to see is that this is, a, what kind of story about it is this? In the beginning, it says God created the heavens and the earth. It's a story of love. It's a story of love. In the beginning, God. So the first thing Genesis tells us is that in the beginning, God the Father is present. And then in verse 2, it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And it says, and then the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God, the language is there's like, he was talking about like a, a mother bird hovering over her nest. The Spirit of God, um, God the Father, God the Spirit. And then in verse 3, it tells us that God spoke. Uh, and so if God speaks, we would, have, we, we would say that that is the Word of God, right? But when we go to the New Testament in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. So Genesis 1 is telling us that the, the word of God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the one through whom everything was made. So the first thing we see is the existence of the triune God, that God, um, that God is a community that there's only one God, and yet God has existed eternally in a community of love in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, living in perfect community with himself. If you were to ask the question, why did God create the world? Most 
people say something like, well, God was like, he was bored, and so he created somebody to love so that he would have something to do so he wasn't bored anymore. But that is absolutely false, according to the Bible. The Bible tells us that the God of the universe has always existed in perfect community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally enjoying each other, deferring to one another, uh, submitting to one another, <coughs> loving one another. Every other religion says that love is an afterthought. Eastern religions um, teach that God is, is an impersonal force, and so love is not intrinsic to the nature of God because uh, God is not a person. And, um, and so humans can love each other, but there is no God to whom, you know, love is due or, uh, or owed or a God who loves us because God is impersonal. Western religions uh, teach that God is unipersonal. And so God is capable of loving, but he had no one to love until he created somebody, an object of his love. But Christianity is unique in a teaching that love is at the essence of who God is. And I, why does it feel to us when we fall in love? Like this is, oh my gosh, my life suddenly has meaning because love is at the essence of who God is. Love is the meaning of the world because God has always loved God's self. God has existed in a community of perfect love for all time. So why then did God create the world if God was perfectly content in himself? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were enjoying rich uh, community and fellowship and they create, God creates the universe and human beings in order to bring others into the party. And that is the nature of God's character. That love always moves outward. Love always invites others in. Um, God decides to create in order to expand the party and invite you into it. Everything that God does is about expanding the party, expanding the circle of love, bringing outsiders in. This is the mission of the church. Um, it's the mission of the church to continue the, the, the community of love that God, with which God founded the world and to continually be reaching out and bringing more and more people into the, this community of love and to fellowship with the, God, the community of God himself. Um, Leslie Newbegin, <clears throat> excuse me, Leslie Newbegin was a, a British pastor. He was a, um, a missionary in India for a long time. And after spending most of his adult life in India, uh, establishing Christian churches in India, he retired and moved back to Britain. And he discovered that in the time in which he was away, Britain had totally changed. And it was no longer a remotely Christian country. It had become this um, pagan uh, or post-Christian world. And he, he began to discover that in the context of a post-Christian Britain, that the church uh, saw its mission to reach out to those outside of the church and to bring others in to the loving community of the church and into fellowship with the community of God who is love himself. That the church was, was talking about that mission as if it were a burden. And um, it was something that the church had to do rather than something that, that the church got to do. And he wrote this. He said, if one looks at the New Testament, uh, one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets a different impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. 
The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a wonderful fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That uh, the mission of the church did not, the mission of the church begins with an explosion of joy. And so the question, he's talking about the New Testament and the mission of the church in the, in, in to reach out to those outside of the walls of church and bring them into the community of love. But when did that explosion of joy take place? Uh, I hope this isn't too, like, I don't know, convenient or cute to say this, but it strikes me that that is almost exactly the way, if you take out the church part, that scientists and astronomers talk about the origins of the universe, isn't it? Um, Newbegin says that the mission of the church is like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. Right after Christmas, we uh, took our kids, our family, up to the Griffith Observatory in L.A., and uh, we watched this show about you know, the, history, the origins of the universe, and it said that the universe is... 14 point something billion years old, and uh, 14 point whatever billion years ago, all the matter in the universe was compressed into a singularity smaller than the, than the nucleus of an atom. And at that point, there was an explosion that threw everything out into an ever-expanding universe. But it began with that explosion. And I remember them saying this, that... Um, that because of that explosion, everything that exists is stardust. Everything we are, every everything that we see, touch, every all matter in the universe is actually stardust. It's a radioactive explosion, which is not lethal, but life-giving. Isn't that beautiful? This is why falling in love feels like it's the meaning of the world because it is. It's written into the very fabric of creation and who we are. You, not me, is at the heart of God, and it's at the heart of who we were meant to be. The story that makes sense of our lives is a story of love that begins with an explosion of joy. The community of God expands ever outward in an explosion of joy. That, isn't that a beautiful statement of why we're here and what we're here to do in the world? This is why um, we don't have to run from the first truth, that God is the main character, um, in the world. Uh, we don't have to run from the truth that God is the main character because God is the main character and yet it's a story of love. Uh, he's, not, he's not created us to mess with us. He's the main character, but we have a part to play in this world. Uh, it's a story of love. He loves you. He cares for you. He cares about what you care about. He doesn't give up on us when we rebel against him. Uh, when we divorced him, when we told him, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but like, I'm not, we're turning our backs. We're divorcing you, God. We're going to do our own thing. We reject him. And instead of simply saying, well, that's just the end, the God who is a community of love, the God who created the world, the universe, by speaking it into existence, writes himself into the story. And he takes on the flesh of, of human beings that he created. And he lives and he dies and he is raised again. He comes not in strength, not to awe us with his power. He comes into the world he created in weakness and vulnerability to live for us, 
to die for us and to be raised to new life for us. What is he doing? He's giving himself away for us. That's the essence of love, isn't it? It's giving ourselves away for others, for those whom we love. That's why we begin to really experience life. I mean, we have this myth that we tell ourselves that in six months I'll have what I need and then I'll be happy. And it never happens. And yet sometimes you find yourself in the middle of this thing that you didn't really want to do and you're serving people and you just, all you could think was that it was going to be gross and you, like all of a sudden you look around and you're like, this is what life is all about. And you know that that has the ring of truth to it, doesn't it? (coughs) That actual life is found in giving ourselves away for other people. We know that that's true and yet we resist it with all that we are. So we have to look again at the story. We have to listen to the story. We have to remind ourselves of what's really true because we live in this confused, disoriented world. Thirdly, what's the setting of this story? I'm going to say very little about this, but the setting of this story is that where, where, where does this story take place? God is an artist who created a playground for humans to live in. Um... What I want you to notice in Genesis 1 is the way that God works like, a, like an artist with a blank canvas. God bringing beauty and order out. It says that the earth was without form and void. It was chaotic. It was nothing. It was blank. And God speaks and brings beauty and order and goodness into it. And what we see is uh, God creates in days 1 through 3, he creates the framework. And then in days uh, 4 through 6, he goes back and he fills the framework of creation and, what's, what's, and God says over and over again, it was good, it was good, it was good. And he gets to the end and he says it was very good. What I want you to get the sense for is this, that God creates like an artist. Not, and I don't mean disrespect in, in saying this, but God doesn't create the world like an accountant or like an engineer. He creates the world like an artist. Nothing against accountants or engineers. <clears throat> Cornelius Plantinga is a philosopher and a theologian. And um, he, he, in it, he's writing about the book of Job, where it says that uh, talks about the creation and um, God laid the foundations of the of the earth. And this is the way that Cornelius Plantinga sums up God's work in creation. It says God, he says God fathers the rain and he mothers the ice. When the sea bursts from the womb, God wraps it in swaddling clothes. He also speaks to the sea as if it were his own rambunctious, exuberant child. This far you may come and no further, says God. And nature talks back to God. The whale speaks to God with soft words. Lightning bolts say to God, here we are. And at the dawn of creation, angels and stars form into an audience and then a choir. And they watch God go to work. In one spine-tingling verse, the book of Job says, God laid the foundations of the earth while the morning stars sang together. And all, cre- and all the angels shouted for joy. Isn't that a beautiful description of the God who, who is a creator, who is an artist, uh, who created this playground for us to live in? When we were at the Griffith Observatory, we saw this, this uh, film called uh, Centered in the Universe. And it talks about how you know, human beings, we used to think that we were the center of the, the cosmos, the universe, and that the planets revolved around us. And obviously we know that that's not the truth anymore. Earth is not at the center of the universe, but the universe is filled with countless stars and galaxies and 
unfathomable distances. And it, it made this statement uh, in this film that said that we live, all of human existence has taken place in like the suburb of a small galaxy, a medium-sized galaxy called the Milky Way. And I just think it is so incredibly beautiful that God did not say, well, I'm going to put human beings in the center of the universe and everything is going to revolve around them. But he's filling earth like an artist and saying, and this tiny thing that would seem to, you know, the scale of the universe perspective, it would seem like this is an insignificant detail and yet that's where life is flourishing and that's where God came to take on flesh and to live and to die. The devastating creativity of the God who spoke it all into being. I mean, think about it like this. There's, there's, there's more than one way to make dinner, right? I mean, one way to make dinner is to go buy the cheapest TV dinner you can and put it in the microwave and nuke it for 90 seconds and slap it in front of somebody and that will nourish them, I mean, at least for a little while, right? Or you could go and, you know, you go to local grocers and you source all the ingredients from local farms and you spend day, hours, days creating this, you know, and then you invite people in and you set before them a feast, right? That's how God created everything. It's a feast. It doesn't, God doesn't create just enough to sustain life, just barely enough to let us survive, uh, he is lavish in his goodness, and he is thorough in his work of creation. We reflect his image best when we do good work, bringing order and beauty into the chaos of people's lives. Uh, some of you are lawyers who bring order into the chaos of people's lives. Uh, some of you work to build or restore homes when, uh, when you know, Damn, pipes break in the middle of the night and you show up to restore order into the chaos of people's lives. Some of you work in education. We talk about chaos, right? <laughs> you bring chaos and order and beauty into people's lives. Some of you are in law enforcement where you work to bring order into the chaos of our broken world. Over and over and over again, God's creation is a playground. It's not a straitjacket. If there are limits, it's because there's got to be, if there's no fence around the playground, we wind up playing in the street. Right? God is good. God is good. Finally, and I'll finish with this, this is a story that you can join. Um, finally, human beings are mentioned at the end of chapter one, and we're going to talk more about this next week. Um, but what I want you to see today is that you have a role to play. You're not the main character, but you have a role to play in this story. And it's significant that though Genesis is describing the very beginning of the world, it wasn't, again, I said this earlier, but it wasn't written at the very beginning of the world and kind of preserved in a, you know, in a, I don't know, that doesn't matter. It, it was written, of, of, what, 1400 BC. It was written to these people who have just come out of slavery and they are confused, and they are broken, and they are lost, and they don't know where they're coming from, and they don't know who they are, and they don't know what lies ahead of them. And God tells them the story, the origins of the universe, and the origins of the human race, to orient them, to tell them what's true. God, through Moses, reminds lost, hurting, broken people who they are, and by implication, he invites us into that story as well. 
I heard somebody talking about a place called Camp Blessing. Camp Blessing is a camp in Texas that was created to give um, special needs and severely disoriented children the opportunity to go to camp, an opportunity that they would never otherwise have. And so um, counselors come and, and leaders come and they volunteer for a week or maybe for the whole summer to um, give these severely disabled children an opportunity to experience real life for a week. And um, this, this man was talk, saying that um, the way that they, they have this ritual that they end every week of camp with where uh, there is this road that runs through the middle of the camp and there's cabins on both sides and these, these young boys and girls with, you know, they're deaf and they're blind and they have severe autism and cerebral palsy and they come out and they stand in front of their cabins. And then there's music and you hear music from the far end of camp and the music begins to get closer and closer and the leaders are coming down and they're playing guitar and they're singing and they stop in front of each child and they call them by name and they pray for them and then they invite them to join the, the procession. They say, come and follow us and these broken children join in the procession and the celebration and the story and that's what the book of Genesis is inviting us into. The book of Genesis comes to people like us, broken, confused, lost people, maybe not always in body, but certainly in every other way. And it invites us to join in the procession, to join in this story. All of creation is groaning, Paul says, in Romans chapter 8. And it's awaiting the day when we will be redeemed. And so we join in this story of what God is doing in the universe. So how do we do that? Well, the simple answer is come back next week. <laughs> but here's why. Because the entire world is telling you another story. It's telling you a story that if you could just finally get on top of it, then you would actually be able to pursue your dreams. And then you would really be happy. And you're failing to do that. And that's why you're unhappy, so just try harder. That's what the rest of the world says. And this is the story of the Bible. You don't just hear it once. Okay, I got it locked in. I'm moving on. It's not simply a matter of coming to church every week. Um, but the mission of the church is to tell that story. To tell the story that God is the main character. To tell the story that uh, God built a playground. To tell the story that the story of the history of the world is a love story that God is bringing us into. And so we gather every Sunday to remind ourselves of that story. And then we go home into our homes and neighborhoods and workplaces and schools and wherever it is we go to live out that story. That's what God's calling the church to do. But if you think you can do that on your own, like you can't, right? I cannot do that on my own. I need you. I need you in my life. We need each other in order to remind ourselves week in and week out that this is the story that we are living by. It's not going to change us overnight. 
But over the course of days and weeks and months of gathering together and dispersing and reminding ourselves this is the story, it actually begins by the power of the Holy Spirit to become what we are doing. It becomes reality as we live this life of the gathered and dispersed church together. So come back again next week. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you that whether we wake up in the middle of the night, whether we find ourselves, whenever it is, and we get in this moment of uh, what feels like um, confusion, maybe it's actually a moment of clarity of saying, this world does not make sense. The story that I have been living by does not make sense of my existence. God, thank you that you speak your word. Thank you that you spoke into the darkness and created the light. Thank you that you spoke the goodness, the beauty of your created order into existence. And thank you that you speak to us. God, would you help us um, look to you with faith as the one who tells a more true, beautiful story than the one that we are living by. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.